In our Bible study group this past Friday morning, we started off by talking about the lectionary that determines our readings week by week throughout the church year and the three-year cycle that takes us on a journey through the Bible with carefully chosen uh, themes relating to the liturgical seasons. And then this long season after Pentecost, what we call ordinary time, when we focus in the gospel readings on the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, if it were not for that lectionary and for our commitment to adhere to it, I'm pretty sure that I and probably most preachers would not very often choose to preach on today's gospel. But we don't get to choose just our favorite parts, the easy stuff. Today, we have what New Testament scholars call one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. What a terrible thing to say. Hate. Now, I remember not even being allowed to utter that word when I was a child, much less about my father or mother, wife and children, brothers or sisters. Matthew's gospel contains this same basic teaching in it, but there it is softened quite a bit. It says in Matthew's gospel, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, our translation of Luke, however, is pretty much what appears in the original Greek text. It is indeed a word that means hate. The word that, Je- <clears throat> excuse me. The word that Jesus is likely to have used in his native Aramaic, however, comes from a Semitic root, meaning to love less. Much closer to what we hear in Matthew, in fact. We don't know why Luke, writing in Greek, would have chosen so much stronger a word, other than to emphasize how very hard it was going to be to be a disciple. Now, there were large crowds that were following Jesus, and undoubtedly they had many different motives. Some followed Jesus because he fed the multitudes, some because of healings and miracles, some because it's what all their neighbors were doing. But Jesus was not looking for a fan club or a market for a product, and he didn't care about setting records for crowd size. Jesus was looking for those who would follow him into the mystery of God's self-giving love into a love that is deep and powerful and one that transcends all human loves, into a love that even called upon his followers to sacrifice one's own interests for the sake of others. It is the love that he would embody as he laid down even his very own life, standing up to and against the violence of empire and the powers of this world. So Jesus is saying to the crowds and to all who would be his followers, including us, you say that you want to follow me, but the way of love is a costly way. There are going to be times when you even have to be willing 
to go against your very own family, the people that you are the very closest to, and the people that you love the most, because they won't always understand. Luke wrote these words to a community that knew about persecution, knew about the price that disciples would pay for their commitment to Christ. They lived in the context of an empire that demanded allegiance to the principle that might makes right, a world where the Caesar, with all of his armies and power to control vast areas of the world's commerce and communication, had achieved it and maintained it through violence and force. It was a world in which Caesar had been given godlike status and where people were obliged to, perform, to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. But this first century movement of Jesus' followers had an alternative message to that and one that would regularly get them into trouble with the forces of empire. Their message was that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. They knew that we become what we worship and that when the world worships Caesar, it becomes a place of brutality and violence and injustice. When we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we are worshiping the one who embodies God's very essence, which is love. And when we do so, we become what we worship, bringing into being the world that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Christians then and now have often paid a heavy price for this proclamation. Sometimes when they went against family and community, sometimes facing prison and even death. Just a few weeks ago, we witnessed this kind of costly discipleship when a group of Christian activists held a protest over the government's treatment of undocumented immigrants. They gathered in the Russell Senate office building on Capitol Hill. Some of them lay down on the floor of the rotunda in the shape of a cross to indicate the kind of self-giving love to which they aspired and to which they were inviting our leaders to aspire in their actions toward immigrant children and their families. Seventy of these protesters, including nuns, priests, and laypeople, were arrested and taken off to jail and taken into custody for their actions. Costly love. I talk to people all the time who tell me, and perhaps you do too, that their own family relationships have been strained and because they have spoken out against government actions and policies that dehumanize immigrants or Muslims or LGBTQ people, our political polarization extends right down into some of our own family relationships. Our basic values are being tested and at times our commitment as followers of Jesus. And yes, we are sometimes being asked to choose between loyalty to family and our commitment to the way of love. Jim Wallace of the Sojourners community in Washington, D.C. says that as a result of the political and religious and moral crises we face today, both the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith are now at stake. This crisis is fundamentally about our chance and our choice of whether those who call themselves Christians are ready to go back to the teachings of Jesus 
and whether such a call might be taken up by others beyond the church. Many of us share a deep hunger for reclaiming Jesus instead of falling into more political polarization. We want theology to trump politics. Sadly, we find ourselves in a time and circumstance when the church itself is often divided, and confusing signals are sent about what it means to be a Christian in this time. Jim Wallace goes on to say that during a crisis, the best thing for Christians to always do is to go back to Jesus. He he reminds us that German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who famously wrote a book titled The Cost of Discipleship, suggested in a similar time in the 1930s that we must always ask, who is Jesus Christ for us today? And that's exactly, Jim Wallace says, what I'm asking us to grapple with right now. My deepest belief is that the conversation around Jesus' teachings and the questions he raised will move us forward to help find the answers that the country and the church most need right now. Too many Christians have forgotten who Jesus is, forgotten his message, forgotten that Jesus taught us to love the stranger in our midst, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and yes, even when that neighbor is a Samaritan or a Muslim or has a different color of skin than yours or is poor and in need. We are living in a time when all of our most basic commitments and our most basic values are being tested. Jesus knew it would not always be easy for those who follow him because it's so much easier to think only of ourselves and of our own needs. What's good for me and mine? But he was calling those who followed him into a place of deeper and costlier love. And he is calling us there today, too. We have an opportunity to share in that love each time we gather here and share in this Eucharist. And it is in sharing that love that gives us life.